OK, so today we're just going to review. Uh, we're going to restrict our review to things that are going to be on the test on Monday. So the test covers chapter 9 through 12. So that's rotational motion and equilibrium and gravitation. So I'm probably actually not going to review any gravitation today, just because we covered that last time. Uh, I'm going to focus more on things that are a little older and things that uh, were covered when I was not here. So the exam will be chapter 9 to 12. Uh, it will be similar in format to the previous exams. There's a practice exam posted online in the solutions. One thing I'll note is that there will be one question on the exam. Usually the, there's a multiple choice, and then there's some questions that are like part A, B, C, D, E. Uh, one of those questions, I'm just going to ask you the question and not lead you through it. There will be no A, B, C, D, or E. I'll just ask you for the final answer. Okay. Um, if you show your work and work out the intermediate steps, you can get a lot of partial credit. Okay. But I don't want to tell you what all those intermediate steps are. Okay. Um, so please show your work. If you think you know what you're doing, write it down. If you get a number wrong or something wrong in the equation, uh, as long as you have your steps shown, I can give you partial credit for that. If you don't, obviously I can't. Um, you'll have a 3x5 note card, like always, that you can put notes on. I'll tell you as we go through the slides today um, what specific things I will give you on the exam. I will not give you any constants or any numbers. So if you want to put the universal gravitational constant, 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11 newtons kilogram squared per meter squared, you can put that on your card. And the exam will be in class, so please try to show up on time so you have the full, full time to work on it. Anybody have any questions? Questions about that or specific questions you wanted to go over today? OK, then we will go on. And I'll start by just reminding you that when we talk about rotational motion, that's something rotating. Oftentimes, that thing that's rotating is physically rotating around some axis. So in a case like this, we've got this barrel. There might be an axis here, or a, an axle, that causes its rotation to rotate around that point. Sometimes we just have an object that's freely moving, say this meter stick. If I throw this through the air, we can describe the motion of its center of mass plus the motion around the center of mass. And that will completely describe how it flip-flops through the air. Okay, so sometimes there's a specific axis um, where it's physically constrained to rotate about, and other times it's a little more freeform. In any case, there's a set of parameters that we use to describe its motion, its rotational motion, and they're very closely related to some parameters we had for linear motion that we've worked with quite a lot. So we had, for example, delta x was the displacement of an object, how far something has moved and in what direction, and that's related um, to angular displacement delta theta by this equation. Delta x is r delta theta. And if you imagine this drum here and there's this rope wrapped around the perimeter, 
if you pull this rope by an amount delta x, you could ask how far does this, how, how much angle does this drum rotate through? And so if this drum has a radius of r, you have to pull the rope by 2 pi r to unwrap one full circumference and to get the whole thing to rotate one full revolution. So pulling the rope by 2 pi r causes the drum to rotate through one revolution, or 2 pi. That's where this expression comes from. Okay, so 2 pi radians of rotation times the radius gives how far a point on the perimeter would move. Critica? I haven't posted them yet. I'll do that right after class. OK, so if you can understand that relationship, then you can understand these other relationships for velocity and acceleration. Because um, velocity is just the time rate of change of displacement. Omega is the angular velocity, which is the time rate of change of angular displacement. So if you just took the time derivative of the left side and the time derivative of the right side, you'd have v equals r omega. So however fast you pull this rope here determines how fast this rotates around. Okay? And the constant that relates those two quantities is the radius. Likewise for the acceleration. If you pull this rope at an increasing rate, this drum has to spin at an increasing rate. And we can relate the acceleration of the rope on the perimeter to the angular acceleration of the drum by A equals R alpha. And you don't need to physically have a drum here with a rope tied around it to make these relationships. You could, for example, look at a meter stick spinning around. And you could relate how fast, say, it's spinning. That would be omega, its angular velocity, to the linear speed of a point on the rim and use the same relationship. Okay, if you knew omega, you knew the radius, the distance away from the rotational axis could find the velocity of a point on the rim. Okay, so I just use this picture of a drum because it's kind of nice. You can see very easily how these quantities relate. Okay, so that's how we relate displacement, velocity, and acceleration to angular displacement, angular velocity, angular acceleration. Some of the other parameters that show up in our kinematics equation, the one big one is the mass. There's lots of equations that deal with mass. Well, when things rotate, <coughs> Um, where are those rotation sticks, by the way, those red and blue sticks? Okay. So many of you got a chance to play with these. These are two sticks that have the same mass, but the mass is distributed differently. Uh, in the red stick, there's a couple masses near the center. In the blue stick, there's a couple that are near the edges. And as a result, if I try to twist them, that is, if I apply the same torque to both of them, <laughs> The red one has much larger angular acceleration, so it moves around more easily. Sort of a layman's way to say that. Tim? Uh, well, it's the same on both of them. On the red stick, the, weight is the mass is located in the center. On the blue stick, it's near the edges. And as a result, um, it's easier to twist one than it is the other. Okay? And if we think about what mass is, you take two objects, one that's very massive and one that's not, say my cell phone and this table, 
right? And I try to push both of them with the same force. The cell phone's going to move with greater acceleration. It's going to be easier to push, right? Because there's less mass. So when I push things with a force, how they respond is determined by its mass. When I twist things with a torque, how they respond is determined by its moment of inertia. That's a proper property of the object that depends on not only how much mass it has, but where it's located. So here's a table. I will give you this on the exam. This table shows you what the moment of inertia is, I, for various mass distributions. These are all um, sort of building blocks, primitives of objects you might deal with. Okay, so here's a rod rotating around this axis. Here's a rod rotating around this axis. Which one of these would be easier to spin around? So the, the first one, why is that? It's a smaller moment of inertia, which you can see from the equation. And physically, um, the mass isn't moving as far. If you look at this, um, the furthest the mass is from the axis is like half of the length of the rod. So it has to go around in sort of a little circle. Here, there's some mass that's all the way over here, one full length of the rod. And if I try to spin this, it's got to go all the way around. It goes further, it's more difficult, it takes a greater torque to produce the same angular acceleration. Okay, so it depends not only on the shape of the object and its mass, but where you rotate it around. So you have expressions for rods, um, boxes, hoops, disks, spheres that are solid and spheres that are not solid, hollow. So just like you can take in, in lab, um, you might have a little hanger hanging off the edge of your table and you need to put mass on it. So you put one little weight and it's not enough, so you put another one on. And however much mass you add up, that's the total mass sitting on that hanger. And that's going to pull down on some string and do something to your experiment. Same thing with moment of inertia. If you have more than one object and you stick them all together, the moment of inertia of the whole object is the sum of the moment of inertia for each part of the object. So that means, for example, if I have, let's say, a wagon wheel. So that's a, an object that looks like this. It's got like maybe some sort of wooden dowels that connect points in the rim, and then it's got this rim. If I want to understand how that object is going to rotate when I apply a torque to it, and I know the mass and size of the different objects, I can figure out the moment of inertia because it's made up of a bunch of these simple shapes. Which shapes make up that wagon wheel? So there's some of these. There's, some there's a cylinder. That's the rim. And then there's either there's this, a long bar pivoting around its center. If I consider a spoke being the full diameter. Or I could consider this spoke being two spokes rotating around its edge, in which case I would have 
something like that. So let's figure this out. Let's say that the rim of this has a mass m rim. And each spoke, I'll define a spoke as being a, a uh, one radius long, has a mass m spoke, has a length that I'll call r, because the length is equal to the radius of the wheel. Let me figure out what the moment of inertia of that object is. So it's going to be the sum of the disk, or I'm sorry, not the disk, the hoop that is the rim, plus the moment of inertia of a spoke, or I'll call it a, a bar. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of those. So if they're all identical. I can just add it up eight times. And I look over here for a thin walled hollow tube. That's number G or letter G. That has a moment of inertia of mr squared. And for the bar, if I'm considering a bar being just this part of the spoke, one radius, it's going to be rotating about this axis here. So I have to use this diagram here for a bar rotating around its axis. That has a moment of inertia of 1 third ml, or mr squared in this case. And that's the total moment of inertia. So I can just add up the individual parts if I know the moment of inertia of each part. I'll print that in the exam. So you don't need to memorize or write down this table. But you'll need to be able to interpret the table. So if I give you a shape, you need to be able to relate it to this, figure out which of those it might relate to, and which of those parameters means what. Yeah, Sam. We've got uh, a spoke being the bar that goes from the axis to the rim. And so if this thing is rotating around its axis, we have to use this object here. Um, that's one spoke. We wouldn't want to use this one, because this is for rotation about the center of the spoke. Right? And we have rotation around the end. So what happens Well, so you could, use, you could consider there being four of these spokes, and they're each a distance 2r long. That'll work, too. If you'll notice, if you plug in 2r for the length, the 2 gets squared. You get 412 <coughs> compared to the mass. Yeah, and the mass would be twice as much. That's right. So it would be 4 sixths or 2 thirds. And you compare that to this, which is 1 third. But you have twice as many of those. Bottom line is there's different ways to construct the total moment of inertia using these different primitives. But um, they should all give you the same, same result. OK, so let's see an example where the moment of inertia is relevant. Um, here's a problem where we've got a pulley, or maybe not a pulley, but a wheel or a drum, like we had in that slide a couple of slides ago, 
with a rope wrapped around the end. And we hang a mass here, and we let it go. Now, if this mass, if this pulley, or this drum didn't have any mass, this thing would just fall straight down. And this would unwind in the process. But if this has some mass, it's going to take some work to get it to rotate. And as a result, this thing isn't going to fall down with an acceleration of g. Um, it's actually going to be slowed down by the tension in the rope. So let's compute um, how fast this mass will be going if we drop it from a height h when it reaches the ground. Now there's two ways to do this. One is using Newton's laws. If we want to find out how fast it's going, we can relate speed to the distance that it's traveled using this kinematic equation. We'll need to know the acceleration. And in order to find the acceleration of this mass, mass we'll need to draw a couple free body diagrams. There's a free body diagram for the mass itself. If we look here at this diagram, we can say, OK, Newton's second law says the sum of the forces is mass times acceleration. And the sum of the forces in this case, if, if up is the y direction, we have t minus mg. That's equal to mass times acceleration. Um, so I can solve for the acceleration by dividing everything by mass. But I don't know what the tension in the rope is. So if I'm not given that in the problem, this isn't going to be sufficient to plug into here and get a, get a solution for how fast it's going when it hits the ground. So what we do is when we draw free body diagrams, we write out an equation of motion. If we don't have enough information, we have to draw another free body diagram. And in this case, the other object is our drum. And it makes sense that we should have to draw this because we can't solve the problem without considering the drum. The results are going to be different if this has a large mass or if it has a small mass. Okay, So whatever the tension in the rope is, that's pulling down on it. Now, is the drum going to accelerate downwards because of that? No, it's got an axle right here that's going to hold it up with some, I'll call it a reaction force. You may have called it a normal force or a reaction force or some force from the axle holding it up. Um, there's also the weight of the drum pulling down. And what we find is that we can add up the forces and set them equal to mass times acceleration. We know the acceleration has to be 0, because this thing is constrained. But we can't really solve for the tension, because we don't know what the reaction force is. Right? This reaction force is just sort of however, whatever force needs to be applied to hold this thing up will be applied. So this really isn't useful. 
So we've drawn free body diagrams. We've written Newton's second law. But we haven't understood a solution yet. And the reason is we haven't considered rotation. This isn't just a mass pulling down and something else pulling up. This is going to rotate. Because we have rotation, we also need to consider Newton's second law for rotation. Okay, so New this is Newton's second law in translation. If I want to write that for rotational motion, what does that look like? I'm going to replace each of these parameters with their rotational equivalent. So yeah, what's the, what's the equivalent of a force in rotation? Torque, right? What's the equivalent of mass? Moment of inertia. And what about the acceleration? Alpha. Yeah, so here's a hint. Um, if you're good with your Greek letters, usually whatever the letter is here, you just take the Greek letter of it. And that probably gives you the, uh, the angular equivalent. Not every time, but. OK, so torque equals I alpha. That's Newton's second law. And we can use our free body diagram. This distance is capital R. We can use our free body diagram to figure out what the torque is from each of these forces. So we need to pick an axis. We'll pick the center here, because that's physically where it's rotating around. So that's sort of a logical choice. And when we do that, what is the torque produced by this reaction force? What is the torque of this force, Ry, around this axis? Zero. Why is it zero? Uh, it's not exactly balanced. It's small. It's actually going to be larger. It's not going to cause it to rotate. Because it's pointing straight through the axis, its lever arm is zero. Its distance from the axis to where it acts is zero. So when we say torque is R cross F, this R is zero. The distance from the axis to the force is zero. So it doesn't produce a torque. There's no way this can make it rotate, because it's pointing right through the axis. Same thing for the weight. So these two forces don't produce torques. What about this tension? Yeah, that will produce a torque. Which direction is that torque? Counterclockwise, so it's out of the board. Um, turns out we only have to worry about one dimension here. So we don't really need to be too concerned about that. But um, this vector r is perpendicular to this vector t. So the magnitude of the torque is r t um, sine, we call it theta. So theta is the angle between them. And in this case, that angle is 90 degrees. So r cross f is rt sine theta. What do you get if you cross an elephant and a bunny? Elephant, bunny, sine theta. 
I'll wait for someone to groan. OK. Yeah, it's a cross-product joke. I'll go on. OK, so that's its magnitude. Its direction is out of the board. So there's the torque. Uh, what is the moment of inertia for this thing? What shape is that? It's a solid disk, solid cylinder right here. So we use 1 half mr squared as its moment of inertia. And we can solve this for the tension. So I'll just divide both sides by r. And now I have a value for the tension that I can plug in over here. Yeah, alpha's in there, and we're not. Yeah, so I was going to get to that in a second. Alpha is not something given in the problem, and it's not something we're trying to find, so we need to get rid of it. Can we relate alpha to the acceleration? Yes. So however fast this disk is going to be spinning around is how fast this string is going to unwind. So the rate of change at which this spins is going to equal the rate of change at which that falls. That means uh, A is equal to R alpha. Okay, so I can write this as um, T equals, this is capital R. So I have an R alpha. So I'll just replace this alpha R with A. And so finally, I can write my acceleration is equal to now for the tension I'm going to plug in yeah, that expression that I just got. And I'm going to divide that by the mass. Notice this is the mass of the drum. This is the mass of the falling object. One's little m, one's big m, and they're different things. Minus g. I can test if that makes sense. Uh, what did I say would happen if this were a massless drum? If I drop this, it just falls down. Right? It falls down with an acceleration of g in the downwards <coughs> direction, or negative g. So big M is 0. This term goes away. And the acceleration is just minus g. Right? Uh, what if this mass is 0, or really, really small? If I drop it, it's attached to this big, heavy cylinder. Basically, nothing happens. Right? It doesn't fall down. So if this mass is small, this, this denominator goes to 0. I don't like that. I have not yet, OK. I have a problem with this. This says a equals a something something. I haven't solved for a yet. Let me bring this to the other side.
Okay, that's better. So if little m is 0, this term in the denominator becomes infinite, makes this whole expression 0. So the acceleration does what I expect it to in sort of the two cases where I know what to expect. So I can have some confidence that this is the right answer. And then I can plug that into my expression to find out how fast it's going when it reaches the ground if it starts from rest. So I will say the velocity when it reaches the ground minus the initial velocity, I'll start from rest, is equal to 2 times this acceleration. The distance it falls is h. So v is equal to square root of 2ah. And I can just plug in my expression for the acceleration. And actually, because height is negative, um, this minus sign is going to cancel the minus sign on that. I'm not going to plug that in. I'll let you do that if you want to. Instead, I'm going to point out that this was not the easiest way to solve this problem. Okay. Okay. Now, it's still a useful, it's a possible way to solve this problem. There are certain situations where you need to go through this route where you calculate the acceleration. If I asked you how long does it take this mass to fall down, you could use this acceleration and relate it to how long it takes it to fall a certain distance. That would be the only way to solve this problem. I didn't ask you how long it took. I asked you how fast it's going when you get to the bottom. Anyone have any other ideas of how we can solve this problem? Austin? What's that? Work energy theorem, conservation of energy, basically equivalent things. Um, We know when it starts from rest, there's no kinetic energy. The potential energy of this mass being lifted up a height to h is mgh. So you can see in this little diagram here, there's some total amount of energy that's entirely due to the potential energy of this mass. And then when it falls down, this potential energy goes away. But energy is conserved, so the total energy stays the same. And all this potential energy has to get shifted over here into kinetic. And if we can write an expression for what that kinetic energy is in terms of how fast this is moving, we can solve for how fast it's moving. So let me do that, because it's an easier way, and um, it's worth seeing how that's done. The initial energy is entirely potential and is mgh. The energy due to that uh, little m mass being lifted up. The final energy is entirely kinetic. Okay, so we have the little mass falling with some speed v. So it has kinetic energy 1 half mv squared. Is that all the kinetic energy we have? No. We also have the drum spinning. Right? And because the drum has mass, it has kinetic energy. So we're going to have a term that looks like 1 half i omega squared. We just have to figure out what the i's and omegas are in terms of the things we were given. Okay, so the moment of inertia for a drum is, uh, we already had it, it's 1 half mr squared. It's this term in parentheses right there. 
I'm going to be careful to use big M. So we're talking about the mass of the drum, not little m, the mass of the, the falling object. And omega, we're not really interested in fa figuring out how fast it's spinning. We're trying to figure out how fast this is falling, but they're related. right? What's the relationship between v and omega? v is equal to r omega, so omega is equal to v over r. So you can see that this r squared is going to cancel this r squared. This 1 half times 1 half is 1 quarter. So I have 1 half mv squared plus 1 quarter big mv squared. And if I factor those out, it will look like this. So let me just set this equal to the initial energy. That's conservation of energy when I do that. And now I can solve for velocity. So I will multiply both sides by 2. I will divide both sides by little m plus 1 half big M. And then I will take the square root of both sides to get the velocity equals And if you want, you can check. That's the same thing that I got the last time. Although it appears in a slightly different form, it will actually be the same, same expression. Just multiply every side, every term by little m. And actually, it looks like I made an error. It looks like I made an error over here with this sign. That needs to be plus. So we can use the same basic problem-solving strategies we used in chapters 4 and 5 for <coughs> linear motion, uh, 4, 5, and 6, where we have either Newton's laws or we have conservation of energy, or for that matter, conservation of momentum. But we just have to include anything that's rotating in the problem. That means we have to deal with torques and angular accelerations when we do Newton's, Newton's laws. We have to use the kinetic energy in rotation, include that in our energy equations. And if we have collisions, we also might want to consider conservation of angular momentum instead of just conservation of momentum if we have things rotating when they collide. Tim? It wasn't. It was MGH, but I had a 1 half over here. So I multiplied both sides by 2.
So I'll just mention the parallel axis theorem as a useful tool when calculating the moment of inertia of objects. If we have the moment of inertia of an object around its center of mass, you might have that because it's either given to you or because you can figure it out from that table that lists the moment of inertia for a bunch of different objects around their center of mass. If you have an object that's not rotating around its center of mass, you can just add to the rotation around the center of mass the rotation of the center of mass. So a mass m rotating around an axis a distance d away will have a moment of inertia of md squared. Okay, so for example, for a stick, in our table it lists the moment of inertia if I spin this around its center or if I spin it around its edge. Right? What if I spin it around some point in between, say right here, say a quarter of the way up the stick? If I spin it around this point, I can treat that as two parts. One is I can treat it as the, the bar rotating around its center. And while it's rotating around its center, the center is rotating around this point over here. And I'm just adding up the moment of inertia for those two types of rotation. So a very powerful theorem. And you're expected to know that, although I'm not going to do a problem on it right now. So just point it up there. If that looks unfamiliar to you, you should go back and review in the text or in Mastering Physics one of the problems that dealt with that. You should know it for the test. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about torque. Torque is what causes objects to rotate. At least it's what causes objects to have an angular acceleration. So if they start at rest, if you apply a torque, it can cause an object to rotate. So I mentioned already that the torque is equal to R cross F. Right? F is the force applied to an object, and r is the distance from the axis of rotation to the place where that force is applied. And this is a vector quantity. So its magnitude we can find from rf times sine, use phi here, rf times the sine of the angle between the radius vector and the force. It's direction we find from the right-hand rule. Okay, so we already did this once, um, where I asked you to use the right-hand rule to find the direction. Let's do it again. If I take this wheel and I want to get it to spin, say this way, I need to apply a torque. Right? I did that by pushing near the rim. So when I push this way, which direction is that torque that I apply? So I guess we'll call it towards you positive. Then it's negative in the sense that it's towards me. Okay. We use our right hand, point our fingers in the direction of R from the axis to where I apply the force. Then we curl them into the direction that the force is going. And your thumb will point in the direction of that torque vector. 
Okay, so what if I push this way down here on the bottom? In this case, the direction, the r vector has switched sign. The force is still the same direction, but the cross product now is in the opposite. So it's towards you. Um, what if I apply a force on the rim, but I'm pushing up over here? What, how much torque does that produce? Zero. It won't make the object rotate because although it's, there's some distance away from the axis that I'm applying the force, so there's some value for r, it's parallel to the radius vector, meaning phi in this expression is zero degrees. Okay, so you may just be able to see that by looking at it. If I push up, it's not going to cause this wheel to rotate unless I'm pushing somewhere to the side of the axis. Uh, there's a lot we can do with a bicycle wheel in terms of understanding torque. Um, I want to walk through this right-hand rule and some of the uh, expressions for torque without doing any math but trying to understand physically what goes on. If you can do that, I'm not so worried about the math. Um, so it's a bicycle wheel. And I know some of you got a chance to play with this while, uh, while I was on leave. I'll leave this out afterwards if you want to play with it. It does some really interesting things when you spin it, one of which is you know, if, I suspend, if I hold it from the edge, it doesn't flop over. Instead, it processes around. Okay, we can understand why it does that. But to start with, um, let's go back and write Newton's second law. What was Newton's second law? What was that? F equals ma. Good. Now we're dealing with a rotating object. So can we write Newton's second law for rotation? What's that going to look like? Torque equals I alpha. Right. Okay, so Newton's second law governs pretty much how things move when forces are applied to them or when torques are applied to them. It governs how things rotate. So that's what we have here. Um, if I'm not spinning this and I let go, it's just going to flop over. So let's see if we can understand that behavior first. When I let go with my left hand, and it's only being held up by the string, let's draw a free body diagram for the wheel. See if we can understand what's going on. So there's the axle of the wheel. Here's the rim. And you're looking at it like this. And there's a string right here applying a tension, pointing up. What other forces act on this? Gravity. Okay, so gravity is going to act through the center of mass, and it's going to point down. Right, there's this tension. And I guess if I want this thing not to just fall to the ground, I need those forces to be equal and opposite in magnitude. That will mean there's no net acceleration. However, it doesn't just sit there in equilibrium. It's not in equilibrium. The forces are balanced. What is not balanced? Mm, can you say it a little more? 
the torques aren't balanced. If I pick a point, any point, I can calculate the rotation, the torques. Let me pick this point right there. How much torque does this tension produce about that point? Zero. Let me call this distance r while we're at it. Okay, so this tension doesn't produce a torque, but the weight does. How much torque does the weight produce? MGR. MGR. So the net torque is going to look like MGR. And it's going to be pointing towards you. So we'll call that a positive, say, z direction. So that has to equal I alpha. There's some moment of inertia for the wheel. I'm just going to call it I. I'm not going to try to calculate exactly how big the acceleration is. I just want to understand qualitatively what's going on. So there's some value for I. Um, what that means is this thing is going to have some angular acceleration. It's going to have an angular acceleration that looks like this. All right, I can just solve this for alpha. Alpha is a vector. Some quantity in the plus z direction. So the plus z direction is this way. So it's going to rotate in the direction that my fingers are curled when I point my right thumb along the direction of alpha. My fingers are curled so that as look, looking at this board, it's going to go counterclockwise. And that's exactly what we saw. Right, so counterclockwise means this. It's going to spin down like that. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense. That's intuitive. And we can show that from Newton's second law. Now, I don't think anybody needed Newton's second law to understand that's what was going to happen. However, when we spin this, the situation changes. Right? When I drop it, it no longer flops down. It does this sort of weird dance. That's probably not intuitive. We don't deal with a whole lot of rotating things in our everyday life, so we don't have a really good intuition for how they should behave. But because we have this law that tells us what should happen, if we trust it, it worked to explain the things that we understood. It should work to explain things we don't understand. Um, OK, so what has changed when I spin it? So we'll start with me supporting the end. Right, so it's not falling over yet. But I give it a spin. What's different? Yeah? It's going to be the torque caused by the, uh, well, the mass hasn't changed. So this diagram really doesn't change. The weight is still acting at the center of mass pulling down. There's still the same tension pulling up. In order to balance, balance it so it doesn't fall down. So it's going to be related to the alpha. When the wheel moves, when I spin it like this, what does it have now? Uh, angular velocity. Angular velocity. OK, not acceleration, because I'm not spinning it to make its velocity change. But it's spinning, so it has an angular velocity. OK, so it has some angular velocity. And let me say that I spin it so that the top is going towards you. Which direction is that angular velocity? 
Mm, positive x, y, or z? Z is towards you. The top is spinning towards you, but the bottom is spinning away from you. All right, so let's use our right hand. Curl our fingers in the direction it's spinning. Our thumb should be pointing to the right. Okay, so we'd say its angular velocity is in the plus extra plus x direction. Okay, so it has some angular velocity, um, which I'll draw like that. Now it's not a it's not a force. I'm not trying not trying to draw it on my diagram. Just sort of indicate near the diagram that it has some angular velocity. Okay, so it's still, all the math we did before is still valid. None of this depended on the angular velocity. So it's still going to have an angular acceleration that points in the z direction. That's towards you. The only thing that Thank you. Okay, so what's changed is not the angular acceleration. What? That actually sheared off. Um, what changes is what effect this has. So what is, does anybody recall the definition of angular acceleration? It's related to uh, alpha by r alpha. Uh, a is r alpha. But what is, what does angular acceleration tell you? Physically, what is it? It's how fast what? How fast the wheel's speed is changing, or how fast its angular velocity is changing. So we can write it like that. It's the time rate of change is the angular velocity. Now here's the thing. If the angular velocity velocity starts off as 0, meaning if I'm just holding this here and it's not spinning, and I drop it, the angular acceleration points along z. So omega started off as 0. If the angular acceleration is along z, which direction is omega going to point after a short amount of time? in the z direction, right? I start at 0. I'm applying a change. I'm applying a change to that. It's in the plus z direction. So it accumulates more and more angular velocity in the z direction. That angular velocity in the z direction means towards you. That's a rotation that points down. Okay, So that's what we saw it do. Now, I've got this angular velocity that's initially pointing along x. So the final angular velocity is going to be equal to the initial angular velocity plus alpha delta t. Right? That's just comes from this relationship. This is how much the angular velocity changes. 
So in discrete terms, that's alpha delta t, and this is what it started as. So the final angular velocity is what it started as, plus however much it changed. Okay, so it starts along x. The change is along z. So let's pretend this meter stick is my vector pointing along x. This is the angular velocity vector as I spin this thing. Oh. I, oh, I need to hold onto the handle. Yes, so as I spin this, this meter stick represents its angular velocity vector. It's pointing that way. When I drop it, this vector gets some additional component pointing along z. So this term points along z. So I have one vector that I started with, and I add to that a component that points along z. The vector tilts out. Does that make sense? Chris? Not make sense? Are you just saying, no, I don't believe it. OK, so we have omega. We have a change to the angular velocity vector. This is along x. That's z. So the new angular velocity is in an angle. It rotates out. So the direction that this thing is spinning is defined by the right-hand rule. You now point your thumb at an angle out towards you, and your fingers are curling like this. So the wheel physically has to turn in order so that the wheel is spinning sort of in this plane so that its angular velocity changes to point in the direction we're going. So the wheel has to do this. Okay. Um, you'll be asked this on the test. Okay. So you can think about it all you want. You can practice. Uh, if you ride a bike, this is how bikes work. You may not realize it. If you ride a motorcycle, you ought to realize it. Because if you don't, you'll probably not turn when you try to go around a corner. Um, a motorcycle is much more massive than a bicycle. And as a result, in order to get it to turn, you can't just muscle it around. You need to do it properly. And the technique that's done is called counter-steering. And does anybody ride a motorcycle? Okay. Are you familiar with the term counter-steering? The, the idea is that if you want to turn right, what do you do to the handlebars? Turn them to the left. Okay. The reason you do that is when you apply a torque in that direction, it causes the bike to lean to the right. When the bike leans to the right, that causes it to turn to the right. But if you just lean your body to the right, that's not going to have much effect. You need to get the motorcycle, which is much more massive than your body, to lean. And you do that by applying a torque by twisting in the opposite direction. Tim? This works on a bicycle, too. If you don't believe me, go ride your bike. And without, I mean, you have to be careful that you don't just, you have to be careful for many reasons. But it's temp we're used to riding a bike, and you just move our bodies around, and we go where we expect to go. But if you concentrate on just keeping your body straight and just twisting the handlebars in one direction, if you twist them to the right, you will turn to the left. And you'll probably turn very rapidly to the left, so much so that you immediately have to correct yourself. You, you don't have to worry about falling down. It's not that big a deal. But um, you may not have never thought about it that way. But go ahead and try it. 
um, and try to work through these diagrams using nothing but Newton's second law and the definition of what alpha is related to omega and the right-hand rule. And you can figure out for every different possible torque you can apply to a rotating wheel how that affects the direction that the wheel will turn. Kritika? Okay. According to the Newton's second law, then how we can relate that to the meaning of wheel? I think you mean Newton's first law says that you're going to keep going in a straight line unless there's a force that acts on you. And in the case of a bike, for a rider, what happens is once your bike leans, here's the seat. Right. So there's the seat of the bike, um, and here's you. The seat. It's pushing up on you with a normal force. Part of that normal force balances your weight and keeps you from falling down. And part of it pushes you in towards the center of the circle. That's what causes you to go around in a, in a circle. What causes the bike to turn, though, in this case, is the fact that as it's leaning, gravity is pulling down over here. The normal force is pointing up over there. Since these forces don't go through the same line, they produce a torque. A torque that wants a torque pointing into the board. So if the, see if the bike is going towards you, its angular velocity is perpendicular to the plane of the wheel. And a torque that's towards you turns in towards the board and causes the whole bike to turn left. Okay, So if you can understand that, you have a good idea of all these different concepts. If you can't, it's a multiple choice question, you can guess. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to skip over a couple of these slides because I want to do a problem on equilibrium. Okay, equilibrium is when an object has no net force and no net torque acting on it. And usually this manifests itself in an object that's stationary. It's not going anywhere. We want it to stay stationary. So we need the forces and the torques that are on it to all balance. Sometimes the questions will be like, how much force can you put on before it will no longer balance, or something like that. Did you do this problem? I will do it, yeah. So here's a situation where you're trying to climb a ladder. The ladder is propped up against a wall. Uh, for simplicity, we'll assume there's no friction on this surface. So this, this surface can't hold the ladder up. Um, this surface here has some friction. That's going to keep the ladder from just sliding out. Um, what's going to happen if you try to climb up too high? You're going to fall. How, how are you going to fall? What's going to happen? Top's going to drop. The bottom slides out. How many people have had that happen to them? Okay. Yeah, this isn't one you want to learn by experience. OK, so let's do this problem. A five meter long ladder. It's at an angle of 53.1 degrees. And 100 kilogram person climbing up it. We'll assume the ladder has no mass, just to keep things simple. And we have a certain amount of static friction. 
We care about the static friction because we want the thing to be stationary. Right? So it doesn't make sense to consider the kinetic friction. We really don't care what's happening once this thing is sliding. Once it's sliding, we've already climbed too far up the ladder. Okay, so we should think equilibrium. We want the system to be in equilibrium. We want to know how far along the guy can climb. So let's draw a diagram of the ladder. It's a free body diagram. What are the forces that act on it? Mass of what, where? Okay, so the person is 100 kilogram mass. And where is the person on the ladder? Do we know where he is? We're asked how far he can climb. So we have to, we have to give that some variable. We'll call it, let's call it x. If you like, you can call it whatever you want. Um, that's how high up the man is. And that's where his weight will pull down on the ladder. We know because its weight is going straight down. OK, there's friction. There's no friction up there. There's friction down here. Which direction does it act? Left to right. You can always figure out the direction. Sometimes it's confusing. If this were ice, which direction would the ladder go? It would scoot out from right to left. The friction must oppose that, so it has to go left to right. You can think about it in that way. So the force of friction. Uh, two other forces. OK, where is that? I heard once at the top. OK, normal force at the top. Like that? Nope, 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 nope. It's perpendicular to the surface, right? That's what normal means. And we deal with a lot of surfaces that are flat. So we may get in the habit of drawing normal forces that point up. But it's just perpendicular to the surface. Since the surface is horizontal, the normal force in this case. And I'll call that the normal force of the top. Because there's also a normal force at the bottom. Anywhere where the object touches something, we'd expect there to be a normal force. So I'll call that. N sub B. The one on the what? There is one on the man, but our object here is the ladder. So we don't want to draw forces that act on the man. In reality, this force that I write as the weight of the man is really the normal force of the man pushing on the ladder. OK, so the system's in equilibrium. What does that mean mathematically? Mass equals zero. Everything. The acceleration's all equal zero. Okay, right. So we have Newton's second law. So I heard lots of people saying this. The sum of the forces has to equal zero because it's not accelerating. And what else has to equal zero? The sum of the torques. Sum of the torques, which is given by I alpha, has to equal zero. And since these are vector equations, this really represents one equation in x, one equation in y. And I guess I sh maybe I shouldn't have called that x. Let me call this d. That's fine. Let me call that d. OK, so I can write the sum of the forces in the x direction, the sum of the forces in the y direction, and the sum of the torques 
And in this case, the torques are all going to be in the z direction. Let me just write what these are. So define my coordinate system. In the x direction, I've got friction pushing to the right, the normal at the top pointing to the left. In the y direction, the normal at the bottom pointing up, the weight pointing down. And then for torques, what do I have to do in order to figure out what the torques are? I have to choose a point. I choose a point for rotation. And it doesn't matter where I choose the point, because regardless of what axis I pick, what is its rotation going to be around that axis? Zero. It's not rotating around this point. It's not rotating around that point. It's not rotating around that point. I can choose any of them. Um, what point might make sense? Okay, the bottom, because that way two of these forces don't produce a torque. I don't need to consider their effect. So let me consider that. Then the torque produced by the weight is R, which I'm calling D, times the force, which has a magnitude mg, times the sine of the angle between them. Okay, so the sine of the angle between them I draw them from the same point is actually this. This is 53.1. So what, this is 90 minus 53.1. And this is 180 minus this, minus 90 minus uh, 53.1. 180 minus 90 is 90, plus 53.1. So I chose that particular number. The sign works out really easily. It's 0.6. So I'm going to write 0.6 as 3 fifths. We'll see why I did that, I think, in a minute. OK, and that is a torque that's pointing into the board. So why don't I call that negative? Um, this normal force also exerts a torque. It acts a distance 5 meters away. And I can work out that this angle is also 53.1. It's uh, alternate interior angles. So that's 53.1. The sine of that is 0.8.
And it is a torque in the positive direction. So I'm going to call that 0.8. I'm going to call that 4 fifths times nt times 5 meters. OK, so that is to equal 0. And this is the only expression that has a d in it. So let me solve that for d. How I got this? If you just if it's the angles? Well, let me see. I'm going to actually leave that for you to figure out on your own, because um, it's just geometry. I'm happy to go over it in office hours, but I do want to complete the problem. We have five minutes left. OK, so I want to solve this for d. Um, the only thing I don't know in this expression is the normal at the top of the wall. I was given the mass of the person, and g is a constant. I have five meters. So I know I'm going to have to find that. So let me find that first, and then I'll, I'll solve for d. So here's an expression with the normal at the top of the wall. It says that I can solve this. The normal at the top of the wall is equal to the force of friction. Right, so friction is pushing in this way. The wall pushes back that way, and they balance. Okay, So the force of friction is mu s times the normal at the bottom. Right, so the force of friction was acting at the bottom. The magnitude of the force of friction is it can be less than or equal to mu times the normal force. This is the normal force acting where the friction is. This is the coefficient of static friction on the ground. It's going to be less than or equal to that. And I'm going to be interested in the case where the normal force is as large as possible. That's going to give me the largest d that's possible. Okay, So that is to say, I want to, this is an inequality. I want to solve for the case where the friction is as big as it can be. It can't be any bigger than that. If it were, it wouldn't be in equilibrium. OK, so now I don't know nb. But I've got an expression here that I can solve. It says nb has to equal mg. Which kind of makes sense. The weight of the person we know is pushing down. The only thing that can support that is the normal force down here on the ladder. OK, so that's what I'll plug in up here. And this expression is going to look like, um, I can write this as 3 fifths dmg is equal to 4 fifths mu sub s is 0.6 times mg. So you notice I didn't plug in his mass yet. And it turns out that the mass is going to cancel. So it doesn't matter how massive you are, gravity as well, uh, whether you're uh, very massive or not. The distance you can climb is the same. Right? And the reason is the more massive you are, the harder you're pushing down, and the more you're causing this thing to try to flip over. But the flip side is, by pushing down harder, friction can push back harder. Okay? So that prevents you from flipping over. So they balance. And that's what we see here. And now the fifths cancel. I forgot a five right there. Thank you. And we divide both sides by 3. And I get that d 
equals to, so I can work out these numbers. So 0.6 is 3 fifths, the threes cancel, 4 fifths times 5 is 4. So the guy can climb 4 meters up. Okay, so this, I like this equilibrium problem because it's one that you might actually see in real life. And, um, you can you can kind of figure out what's going on by looking at it and looking at the free body diagram, but you still need to go through the math in order to know exactly what's going on. That's four fifths, and then the fives canceled, and I had a three from over there. Okay, so um, key things to be able to do are to be able to relate angular motion to linear motion, particularly in problems where we have things unwinding. So we have both of those. When we deal with rotation, the way we keep track of directions is with the right-hand rule. So that's useful both for assigning positive and negative signs, but there's also situations like the bicycle wheel where the vector directions really matter because we have to add up vectors in three space to figure out how things are rotating. Um, moment of inertia determines how hard it is to get something to rotate. It depends on the mass and where it's located and the axis you're trying to rotate it around. Um, if you haven't had a chance to yet, you can come up and play with these inertia sticks. There are two objects that have all the same physical properties except moment of inertia. So if you can uh, understand moment of inertia, you can figure out why one of these sticks is easier to turn than the other. Um, it takes a torque to get something to rotate, just like it takes a force to get something to move. So torque is the rotational equivalent of force. It doesn't push an object, it just twists it. And we didn't do a problem on this, but this is part of what's covered for the test. When rotating objects collide, they don't even have to both be rotating. When you have an object that can rotate and another object that's moving and they, they collide, um, angular momentum is conserved. So you've done an example of this in lab. I think you're doing that this week. Um, so you'll have done that by the time the exam comes around next week. Uh, that's all for now. I mentioned office hours right now and tomorrow from 4 to 6. Is that the constant of 0.6? Is that?